Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the next Food for the Soul sermon here at Perhaps Today. I am your host, Daniel T. Adams, and as always, I am honored to take you through this expedition of God's Word. Today's uh, Food for the Soul sermon is something I'm really excited about. It's something I've been studying uh, here for a little while and have gone through multiple times and uh, still going through it, but just thought I would share this with you uh, to inspire you, to encourage you uh, as we go through this life together. So today's message is going to be called Religion or Relationship? We are the church. Today's lesson that we're going to be going through is going to take a look out of the book of Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. It's a uh, story that I'm sure we are all familiar with if we have read the Bible at all or been in church at all. I'm sure we've heard this story probably numerous times, uh, but we're going to hopefully take maybe a, a different look at it or maybe a deeper look at it today and really try to dive deep into it and and uh, extract some great information that can help us grow uh, closer to God. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at this now. Verse 19 starts off saying, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31 says, He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So, as we take a look at this story, it's it's a story that says many different things. When I was younger and I remember hearing the story, I used to think that this was a story that uh, was a comparison between heaven and hell. Uh, and as, as I take a look at it now, uh, it really is not a story that focuses on heaven. We do know we have, you know, uh, hell and we have heaven. They're both... Uh, you know, drawn out here in the story that Jesus is describing, but it really is not a story to focus on heaven. As a matter of fact, Lazarus, who ends up going to heaven, is not the main character of this story. The focus of this story is the rich man. Even though he's not named, I really believe that he is the focal point of this story. And I think there's some things that we can look back at early in the chapter that kind of really helped to draw this out for us. Uh, earlier on in about verses 14 and 15, we see this being said by uh, Jesus. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. 
Verse 15 says, He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So taking a look at that beginning part, understanding that Jesus here is having a conversation with the Pharisees. They are the religious leaders of, of that time. Uh, to understand them in a little bit more detail. Just before verse 14, we hear that Jesus is talking about you're not able to serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And we know from multiple places throughout God's word that the Pharisees were people who loved money. They loved being celebrated. They loved money. They were in this religious practice of a works-based righteousness. It was ultimately a fraudulent religion. And that's one of the key points that I really want to point out today as we're, as we're diving into this section uh, a little deeper, hopefully, than normally, is that understanding that Jesus is speaking to these types of people. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He knows that the Pharisees are here. So therefore, when he begins this story of the rich man and Lazarus, he begins by saying, there was a rich man. And I can almost imagine the Pharisees, you know, kind of ears perking up. Ooh, a rich man. Wealth. Money. Okay, this is a story I can get on board with. I would almost imagine that they're probably sitting there shouting out some amens and, you know, things that we might hear in church today. Um, because they're hearing something that they love, and it's money. You have this rich man. He's dressed in purple. He's living in luxury. This is everything that they live for. Everything that they highly value is how Jesus begins this story. In a very masterful way, he does this. Then he goes on to introduce a beggar. A beggar named Lazarus. The word uh, name Lazarus meaning one who God helps. And I can immediately imagine at this point of the story, the Pharisees who are listening are kind of cringing. Well, you have this rich man, and that's all, you know, amens and hallelujahs. But now you have this beggar. He's got sores. He's probably painful sores. He's got the dogs licking them. And they're not dogs like, you know, we have dogs today as house pets. These are, you know, dog, um, trash-mongering, you know, animals that are running around the streets. They're probably almost even biting at his, at his sores. This is probably a painful time for Lazarus. Now, the Pharisees, I would imagine at this point of the story, are, are, are listening and they're hearing that there's this beggar and they're immediately thinking, unclean, cursed by God, because that's how they viewed life. If you had wealth and prosperity, you were blessed by God. But if you, you know, had adversity or you had illness or ailment, then you were cursed by God. And therefore, if you were cursed by God, you were unclean and you were not fit to be in their presence. you were They would not touch you because you would make them unclean. They, there was no re way they would even want to help you or reach out to you because now they would feel like they're, they're reaching into the curse that you have by God. They don't want to be a part of that. And so we have these contrasts of these two people, the rich man and Lazarus. And I find it funny that I said earlier a moment ago that I believe that the rich man is the main character of the story. However, He's not the one given a name. But the beggar, the one who by the Pharisees would be considered to be under a curse of God, is the one named in the story. I want to stop for a moment and 
pose a, a, a point and a question. Because I believe it's important to know that here, Jesus knows the name of the beggar, but he does not know the name of the rich man, the man who probably is most likely a Pharisee in this story. So the question that I want to pose, the question that is posed to my heart and I want to pose to all of you, is you might know about God, but are you known by God? It's a great question. It's something that that really, as I study God's Word, really just kind of impacts me to the core, is that do we just know about God? Do we take the time to just read His Word, fill our heads with a lot of knowledge, know the right songs to sing, know the right prayers to pray, know all of the religious things to do, much like the Pharisees? And are we living our lives in this kind of Pharisee-type fraudulent religion that has no truth to it at all? Or are we known by our Creator? Are we known by the Savior? We know in other scripture that there will come a time where he says, you know, people will come stand before me someday. And they will say, Lord, Lord, in your name I did all of these wonderful things and healed this and did that and did all these righteous-based works. And I, I will look at them plainly and say, I do not know you. And for me, when I look at this passage in the book of Luke, and then I, I kind of compare that and contrast that with that other scripture, is it really makes me pause and take a moment and say, do I just know about God or do I know God? Am I stuck in this religious Pharisee type life or am I known by my creator? So my first point of question would be, where are you today? Are you a rich man who's got the lavishes of this life? Maybe you go to God when things get rough. Maybe when the coronavirus shows up, we start praying a little more. Maybe we, we listen to more Christian music. You know, Maybe we give a little bit more tithe. Or do we spend time trying to build a relationship with God? Religion or relationship? Where are you spending your time? You know, as a, as a parent, as, as a person who has a child, has another one on the way, I don't want my son to come to me just when he needs something. You know, if he falls down off of his bike and skins his knee, well, he needs dad to take care of him. He needs daddy to pick him up and, and you know, clean off the cut. And then as soon as, you know, everything's better in his eyes, he runs off and doesn't need me again. Because to me, that's not a relationship. That's just, hey, I need something from you and you're supposed to do this because that's the role you're in, so just do what I need and then let me send me on my way. That's not a relationship. That's just, hey, I need something. I want something. It's not even a need. It's just an I want. And that's another contrast we'll see there. Religion, relationship, need, want. Rich man, poor man, you know, Lazarus, Pharisee. We see all these contrasts. But what's important to me is that my son wants a relationship. Because when I see him putting in the effort to wanting to know who I am, wanting to, not just about him and what he wants so that he gets what he wants, but he truly wants to know who I am. When those moments happen, the relationship grows closer, the bond grows closer. And then what I find myself doing just naturally is wanting to not just meet his needs, but go above and beyond 
to reward him. Well, our Heavenly Father is no different. But if all we're doing is living this Pharisee existence, this religious existence, that we're highly valuing everything other than a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're missing out on the relationship. And this is what our Heavenly Father sent His Son for. Not this. This is fraudulent. This is fake. And this is why Jesus is telling the story. And this is why Lazarus is not the main character of the story in, in, my, in my heart. And why heaven is not the main focus of the story. Because he's trying to reach out to the Pharisees and tell them, this is what is in store if all you're going to hold on to is your fake religion. If there's no relationship with the Father in heaven, and the only way to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ, and you don't even recognize Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, then you're you're not going to get this over here. This is what's in store. And what's interesting is uh, he's using an example of of hell. And and back in the day, in the Old Testament, there was a place called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a place, it was south of Jerusalem, and it was a place where God's chosen people actually would offer children in a fire to a, a fake god named Moloch. So what's interesting about this is it was something that they did that was detestable in God's eyes. These, these child sacrifices that they would offer by fire at this place called the Valley of Hinnom later on became a place where they would burn trash and refuse of the city, dead bodies. They'd, they'd throw them into this, uh, this, this fire pit and it would burn, and it would burn, and there was so much trash and waste and refuse and that they were constantly throwing in. The fire was constantly burning and burning and burning, and it was never going out, and the smoke was always rising, and the smell was always just, just all over the place of how horrible of a stench that must have been. But the fire never went out, and many times in Scripture... Jesus is talking about hell, and he's using this word uh, in the Greek, uh, jaana, which is the trans Greek translation to the Valley of Hinnom. He's letting them know hell is just like this detestable place where these horrible sacrifices to fake gods that for whatever reason you thought was going to be pleasing to me is not. And where trash and garbage and refuse and rubbish is burned all the time, where dead bodies are thrown into, and the fire is never quenched. And he's using that Jayana as a, an example of what eternal hell will be like for the soul and the body. And so he talks many times about hell in Scripture. And he's always using that word in the Greek to explain and try to give the illustration to what that is going to be like. And here we see as he's, as he's speaking to the Pharisees, he's letting them know, you can hold on to your fakeness. You can hold on to your fraudulent religion all you want. You can practice it and produce it and be it and live it and promote it. But this is what is in store in wait for you, a detestable place, because I detest these practices. They're abominable to me. Matter of fact, if we go back uh, into the scripture, let's go back to where we were earlier, we, we see this. He's saying here to the Pharisees that 
The Pharisees, whom loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Back to verse 15, he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So we see here, he's telling them, what you highly value, that word is actually a word of what you exalt above the God and creator of all creation, the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are actually taking things and valuing them and putting them above even higher than God, to the highest of heights, higher than heaven. You are highly exalting these things. And the moment we put something above God. We are making that a God, a false idol. It is detestable, just as they did in the Valley of Hinnom when they were burning children to this fake God. Were they not surprised that he would find it detestable? Were they not surprised that that would be an example of what hell would be like? And then he goes into the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So, <clears throat> I want to take a look at something here in the book of Matthew. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what's interesting about what Jesus is saying here to his disciples and I think it, it needs a little bit of backstory to kind of understand this. And I think we'll see how it ties in. He's sending them out. And he's telling them, don't take any gold or silver. Don't take money. Just take what you have on you. And go out and, and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. And go into the towns. And if you find a home that welcomes you in, stay there. And let your peace rest on it. And, uh, and greet the home as you enter it. And if they don't, you know, receive you, dust your feet off, and, and move on. And the, don't be worried about what you will speak, because it's not going to be your words, but the words of the Spirit of, of God. And he's, he's telling them to do all these things. And then shortly here, he says, Do not be afraid of the ones who can destroy the body, but not the soul. And he's even telling them earlier on, he's saying, you're going you're gonna to come into some some conflict. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. You're going to be brought before governors and Gentiles and all of these things. And you're going to meet a conflict. You're go it's not going to be you walk into a place, you know, preach the gospel and everything's, you know, grandiose and everyone's high-fiving and, and, and receiving the message. You're looking for that. But that's not what it's... You're going to have some of this opposition. It's not going to be all this, but this is what the goal is. And what's interesting is at the very beginning of the chapter, he says, do not go to the surrounding Gentile areas. No, no. You're going to go to Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, as he calls them. So what's interesting is they're going to Jewish people. They're going to the Jews who should have known should have been studied and prepared for the Messiah to show up, to hear his message, and to receive the salvation that God has had for them, to make the Messiah their king and Lord. They should have been prepared. But what does he tell them? You're going to meet opposition. Why? Because of the fraudulent religious. 
events going on, being preached, being proclaimed. Because it wasn't the relationship with, hey, the Messiah is coming. Here he comes. Let's look at the prophecy and see when he's going to ride in and be proclaimed Hosanna and King. No, no, let's not worry about that. Let's be lovers of money. Let's highly value something else other than God. Do we do that today in this day and age? Have our churches in this country become another just example of Pharisees? Have we made our religious practices more important than the relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, this coronavirus experience has been something that has been very eye-opening because churches, we can't meet right now. And so we can't gather together. We can't do the, the normal weekly practices that we're so used to doing. So what has that changed in our life? Are we now worshiping less? Are we now having less of a connection with God? Are we, are we having less of His Word? Are we, is it less now because the religious stuff can't go on? Or should every single day in the life of a true believer be a moment where we wake up and, and worship God for an, the breath in our lungs? When you woke up this morning, what was your first thought? What was the first thing you did? Reach for your cell phone? Or reach out to the relationship of your Creator? When, when we go about our day, maybe we're still going to work and we have a job, we're essential workers, and we can go out there and, and, and do our normal daily tasks, and maybe we can't, maybe we're at home. But should that make our relationship with God any less? Because the religious things that we're so used to doing, we can't do now? Because if that's the case, then we are no different than this rich man that Jesus is describing. And I'm here to tell you today as we dive into God's Word that there's so much more to be had than just a religion. It's a relationship. Be known by God. Be the one whom God helps. So let's keep going on. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and linen, excuse me, and lived in luxury every day. Just a quick quick point real quick. That word lived in luxury every day does not just mean that this man was a man that had money and wealth. There's nothing wrong with having money and having possessions and having things. This word lived in luxury is a word that means he was celebrated because of it, and he loved the celebration of men. He was highly favored among men because of his luxury, and he lived in it. He dwelled in it. It was his God. And what we see as we continue going on is we see these contrasts. This story is a huge story of contrasts. We have a rich man who has wealth and everything, and we have a poor man who has nothing, but yet we see a poor man who receives everything and a rich man who receives nothing. We see a rich man who has food and feasts just because he can, and we see a poor man who begs for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Then we see a poor man who receives a banquet in his honor in heaven, and a rich man who just hopes for a drop of water on his tongue. We can continue going. The story is a contrast back and forth, back and forth. Rich man, Lazarus, religion, relationship. 
Let's continue reading. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now that word laid, at the gate laid a beggar, is not just trying to give you an example of, oh, he's laying down. God does not waste words. If he's written it, there's a reason for it. That word laid is the same word, I believe in the Greek it is balo. It is the same word that is, is used to meaning to throw and to cast away, to throw out. Kind of like a, a dirty napkin. You use it, you wipe your face, and you throw it out. It's the same word Jesus uses many times when he's talking about the tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown or cast into the fire. Again, a hell concept. So it's the same word as this man was detestable, was thrown out, was cast away by the rich, by the Pharisees, because he was unclean. According to them, he was cursed by God. So he wasn't just laying there, is that he was cast away, he was shunned by society. Verse 22 says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Again, another great contrast, but the first thing I want to do is just comment on how I like how the NIV here that I'm reading puts the, the phrase, the beginning of verse 22, it says, the time came. All right, so I think it's very poignant at this point. I'm not a, a fire and brimstone, hell and damnation type of person, but it's important to understand that the time came for both of them. The time will come for you and I. There is no escaping it. Rich, poor, religious, relationship. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you practice. It doesn't matter how you live your life, how much your paycheck is, how what your insurance is like, where you live, economical status, how many friends you have on Facebook. It does not matter. The time will come. And all that matters at that moment is that the relationship is not true and genuine with Jesus Christ. If it's a religion that's being driven forward by, a, uh, by uh, whatever you highly value and you just justify yourself before men saying, oh yeah, it's for God. Oh yeah, the word of God is so important. Oh yeah, it's all about Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Love you, man then the time will come and one of two contrasts will happen. The Lazarus was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The poor man, and he wasn't carried anywhere. He was buried. What a horrifying thought when I first came to that and I read that and I saw the contrast. I can be comforted by the angels as I'm carried into the glory and into the presence of the Almighty God, or I can be buried. And what awaits me is torment, because that's what verse 23 shows us of the rich man. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. You know, one thing I want to point out here, okay, I don't want to harp 
too much. And there's so much, I'm sure, if I just continue to study it, I'm sure I will continue just to extract more wealth of God's wisdom and just masterful uh, ability to share and reveal His truth. But I don't want to take too much time except for looking at this one point in this section. Is that Lazarus, being someone claimed to be cursed by God, by the Pharisees, and by this rich man, would not have ever wanted to touch him or touch any part of him. Even if he had reached out in, in, in life and had touched his robe, I believe that they would have discarded the robe and had it burned because it would have been considered to be unclean and they don't want any part of God's curse. And here he is, in another contrast, asking for Lazarus to dip his finger in water and to provide that for him to drink. He's not so unclean now, is he? What do we highly value in life? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your resources? Where are your thoughts on yourself, on how you can achieve more successes in this life? Again, there's nothing wrong with having possessions. But the moment we highly value them and highly exalt them to the highest of heights, even above the God of heaven and earth, we are falling into the Pharisee mindset. And then we justify it, saying, oh, all glory to God. Amen, hallelujah, we receive. That's good. See, I'm sure at this point of the story, the Pharisees were shocked. What do you mean the rich man is just buried and Lazarus, the poor, beggar, unclean, cursed man, is carried away up to heaven? It doesn't make sense. If you're rich on earth, you must be rich in the afterlife. That is not the case. The afterlife, eternal life, immortality of the soul does not and is not dependent upon the possessions that we have on this life, but only through Jesus Christ and a relationship, not a religion, with him. I want to read something real quick from the book First Peter and try to dig into this a little deeper. This is what it says in First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what I love about this section of 1 Peter here, is he's giving us, again, a contrast from what we're looking at with the Pharisees. Fake religion, fraudulent religion, leading people into something that's just going to lead them straight to torment and hell 
and a permanent separation from God. I don't know about you, but that's not that's something that just like it's horrifying to me. It's not the torment part. It's not the fear of the pain and the suffering and the unquenchable thirst and the burning and it's being separated from the almighty God. You know, my wife and I we've been married now since the year 2004. So we're going on to 16 years this year. And I love her with all of my heart. And there is nothing that scares me more than the thought of being without her. And it's not just like, well, someday, you know, the love of my life will pass away. And it's not even a separation by death. It's just a separation that I could do or say something or anything that would push her away, that would, would remove me from her presence. Because that's what love is. Love is, is, is being right there in the presence of that person that you love and fearing anything that could separate it. And what we see that the Pharisees are offering from the story of the rich man and Lazarus is, is a road, a very wide road, that's leading to destruction. A wide road that's leading to a permanent separation from God. We see that later on when the rich man says, send Lazarus, as if Lazarus is his slave all of a sudden. Send Lazarus to me to dip his finger into the water so I can have this, you know, some type of thirst. I'm thirsty. I'm, I, need, I need water. I need something to quench this thirst. And Abraham's, you know, he responds to him. Part of his response is, you know, hey, there's this great chasm that's fixed between us. Like there's, even if we wanted to go from us to you, we couldn't. And, and you can't go from there to here. It's impossible. It is a permanent separation that is seen so poignantly in this part of Scripture. And that's the point of love. That's the point of a relationship. Is, is waking up every morning saying, Lord, what can I do to always be in your presence? To always do and say and think and be someone that will please you in all ways. Are we going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are we going to make mistakes? Absolutely. God knows we are sinners. I, I, I always love going back to Romans 7 with Paul. Oh, what a wretched man I am. That which I, I, I do not want to do, that I do. That which I do not want to do, you know, I do want to do, I don't do. And I think I did that backwards. But anyway, the point is, we're, not, we're still living in a sinful nature, wretched body. And until we are removed from this, either through death or from when the Lord comes to call us home, we have to exist in this. So we're not going to be perfect. But we can strive step by step onto that, that road of relationship because we love Him, because we need to please Him. Just as, as I wake up and I want to please my wife and do the things and say the things that are going to make her just smile and be proud and, and be joyful and be secure. I want to I wanna wake up and I want to speak and I want to act and I want to be what's going to put a smile on my Heavenly Father's face. So when we woke up this morning, what was your first thought? Where are your thoughts throughout the day? What are the things you're putting your time and resources into? Because it's very easy to see what people highly value because it's where they're putting their resources. 
If my resources, you know, we can see it with uh, with the stock market. You, you have money to invest in the stock market, and you think this stock over here is going to bring me the best return, so I'm going to invest in that. I'm going to invest my resources into, into what I believe is going to give me the best result. Well, it's not much different spiritually. What am I going to invest my time in, my, my money, my resources, the house that God gave me? The possessions that God gave me, not living like the rich man in the celebration of other people because I have this stuff, but living in a way to use what God has given me to bring all glory and praise and honor to Jesus Christ. And as we see here, as, as we as believers begin to do that, we find ourselves in this First Peter second chapter mentality, understanding that there's this living stone that was rejected by men but chosen by God. That is Jesus Christ. And just like him as living stones, we are being built upon him. And we are being built into this this spiritual house. This is what church is. It is a spiritual concept. It is the body of Christ. When in, in the message we did for explaining what perhaps today is all about, and we're talking about the Lord coming and calling home his body, his believers, and we're going to be met up with him in the air. It's not us in our church buildings that go. It's us. It is a spiritual house. We are a spiritual people belonging to God. So we can either be celebrated and belong to men and justify ourselves before men, or we can belong to God by building our life on the living stone, Jesus Christ and being built into a spiritual house, not a physical one. There's nothing wrong with gathering and and encouraging each other and supporting each other and helping each other. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that religious act becomes greater than the relationship, we are missing the point. And if we take a couple look at the points of what he's talking about, number one, we have to go back to the very first words of what we read here in First Peter, and it says, as you come to him. We have to come to him. We have to be willing and humble and come to him. And when you come to him, you leave everything else behind. You don't come to him with an intent and a motive to go back. You come to him and stay, and he keeps you and holds you, and he becomes the Lord of your life. And he becomes the Lord of everything you possess because it's all his anyway. We can, you know, give a little bit but hold on to something else and think, this is my portion. Or we can say, you are the Lord of it all. You've given it all and I give it all back to you. And however you need me to use these resources, I will use for your glory and your kingdom. Or we can do the Pharisee way and be lovers of money and lovers of stuff. But we have to to be willing to come to him because he is the only way to the father jesus said i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me we have to come to him to be built into a spiritual house we are the church he mentions being built into a spiritual house a holy priesthood means he takes something that is sinful by nature and he regenerates us. He brings life to our soul and to our spirit. He fills us. He indwells us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us all power and authority in his name. And he makes something that is 
detestable and an abomination to him. And he makes us holy. He does it. We can't do it. Sorry to tell the Pharisees they were wrong. Sorry to tell all the churches that are following a Pharisee righteousness by works based system. You're wrong. We cannot earn it. He does it. We just have to come to him. He makes us a holy priesthood. It means we've got work to do. We're not just given this gift so that we can just sit around and now do whatever. Live in our luxury. We're not given this freedom so that we can go abuse it. We're given and created to be holy so that we can declare his praises, so that we can be a holy priesthood, so that we can be the example and the voice of the word of God. Because people aren't just going to pick up God's word and say, oh, I got it. Oh, yeah, there was a Jesus, and now I'm going to make him the Lord. It is up to us, church, to be the example, to be the evidence that Jesus Christ is real because only he can take what is wretched and make it beautiful. Only he can take what is religious and make it a relationship. What are you seeking today? Here at Perhaps Today, my goal is not to... Let's just do a religious thing. Let's get together, watch some videos, hear some audio, uh, read some Bible verses, talk about it for a little bit, check it off our box for for the week, and move on. But it's to encourage us to the relationship part of the contrast, to the Lazarus, to be known by God. Thank you so much for tuning in to another Food for the Soul sermon here at Perhaps Today. As always, I am your host, Daniel T. Adams, and it has been an honor to take you into this expedition of God's Word. Please, if you are in need of prayer or you are uh, struggling with something in life and you just need to talk to somebody, please reach out to us through our website at perhapstoday.danieltadams.com. Let us know how I can better serve you. Don't forget also, you can follow me on all the social media channels to keep up to date with content as it comes out weekly. But more importantly, if you know somebody who is in need, please share this video with them. Because God's word is meant to be shared. And we will share it. Because we are the church. Thank you so much. God bless.